Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host Titus and today I'm joined again by my friend Scott Beauchamp for a discussion of horror. On our last conversation, we talked about The Exorcist, a Catholic horror, or the confrontation between faith, providence, salvation, and on the other hand, the the devil, or evil. And now we are turning to another horror movie, the atheist or scientific horror, 1982's The Thing, directed by John Carpenter, starring Kurt Russell, a cult movie at this point, and something very much worth talking about. But first, Scott, I ran into your ideas about horror reading you in a modern age. It was wonderful thinking along with you about Russell Kirk, about Christianity, about science, about body horror, and whether it's worthwhile to be human, and how drama thinks on this and reflects different opinions in our society on these matters. So please, first of all, introduce yourself for our audience and tell us about your writing. Well, uh, as you said, I am a writer who writes mainly about cultural criticism and military issues. Um, I'm also an editor, and I publish some poetry. And the piece that you're referring to in in modern age, I was using The Exorcist to represent a certain kind of horror, supernatural horror, which is the horror of realizing that our plane of existence isn't just horizontal or merely horizontal, but also vertical, and also the responsibilities that come along with that the pressure that puts on us as individuals and as communities. And a movie that I used to show the opposite of that, uh, which is sort of a Lovecraftian horror, a horror, a cosmic horror, the horror of, of life itself, confined to life itself, life without being, uh, in a sense, is John Carpenter's The Thing, which I think is, is a great example of this. And I think in the piece, I might have come off as if I thought this was some sort of lesser form of art or, or lesser form of porn. I don't at all. I believe in the piece I called it a B-movie, which was a mistake. It's, it's, it's not. It's quite a good film. and It's a beautiful piece of art in its own right. I just happen to philosophically disagree with some of the uh, thematic elements in it. Or I should say believe that they aren't actually problems because of my own personal faith, which is a different thing altogether. But as art, I think it's amazing. I think this is uh, my personal favorite. Uh, John Carpenter movie, followed very closely probably by They Live and followed by Halloween. Um, But I think that a good place to start off when thinking about the thing is with the name itself. The title suggests a monster without a specific form, without specific identity. Uh, We're not talking about Dracula or the mummy, which is a monster that has a personality. It has a history. Um, it exists within a known order, even a known metaphysical order. We can combat it. We can fight it. We can figure out the rules to follow. And with the thing, and, and I think John Carpenter is really, he has an affinity for these sort of nameless monsters. And the Halloween, Mike Myers is credited as the shape. He really has an affinity for these kind of nameless entities. And they are terrifying, mainly because they are borderless maybe physically, maybe temporally. And so they appear to be almost undefeatable. Um, We don't quite know how to face them. Maybe the best we can hope to do is endure them. Maybe the best we can hope to do is survive them. And in some way, I think this sort of shapeless horror that we don't quite understand has a strange resemblance to the life force itself. The thing becomes a stand-in for our own uncomfortable relationship with living, with being a living creature. And perhaps opposes itself to life with being or life with meaning, which is a life that has form, that has limits, that has a direction, 
And instead, we're faced with this meaningless, almost nihilistic continuity into uh, a far eternity of just life, reproducing itself constantly, meaninglessly. Yeah, this is very well said. And I also agree that Carpenter is quite an artist and that horror should just get more credit as a reflection on our mortality and on our existential situation done admittedly through all sorts of shocking things, but not uncalculated things, nor is the calculation or the craft something as simple as what'll get a scare, what'll gross people out. These are all quite thoughtful things. And since you mentioned Lovecraft, briefly you could put the anthropology of conservative horror this way. We thought we were going to get progress through science. We thought that our enlightenment world was going to give us more and more power, more and more understanding, and that therefore things are going to get better and better. But in fact, the more science we get, the more power we get, the more we have to confront horror. And that seems to be the fact that there's no providence to life, that being human is not special and it's not uh, redeemable. There's no Jesus Christ who's going to come and save you. You're alone, and it's a miserable thing to be to be human because you know it. Mortality wouldn't be so bad if only we didn't know. But in knowing, you inevitably learn more and more about your vulnerability and therefore how defenseless you are in an existential way. And you could think about this as a history or an anthropology in the far, far past. We were vulnerable, we invented all our arts and sciences and our cities in order to get power to defend ourselves from nature, so that we wouldn't die in catastrophes, so that we wouldn't die of starving or of cold. And we thought at the same time that what we brought with us into our cities, religion, meant that we would be protected by God or by gods who cared about us. But the more and more our scientific powers advanced, the less and less could we believe in those gods or in God. And therefore, the less and less we thought we needed protection from God because we had our own powers. But then in the space age, we discover through science that in fact our lives are pretty meaningless. That there is no God to protect us and nor will our scientific powers suffice to protect us. That's the revelation that you get in this sort of horror that I call conservative since it is anti-progressive. Lovecraft was a great example of this. His conservatism was cosmic. He was saying the most powerful things there are are the oldest in the past, not the newest in the future. They're just new to us because we've forgotten about chaos and we're going to learn the hard way again. There are limits to progress and they come up in nasty ways. Alien is a great example of that just before the thing was made. There you see again life in its monstrosity. The robot in that movie calls the alien the perfect organism because it just reproduces itself. It's a monster. It kills continuously just to reproduce itself. It has no purpose to life, no intelligence except in killing and reproducing itself. So also here with the thing, it's a space alien that comes to Antarctica to a station of scientific study. It is modern mankind with scientific power and scientific thinking that is confronted with this horror. And you can compare this with Halloween, which happens in perfect little suburbia. Evil there comes looking very, very different because it's about the moral confrontation with adulthood for young people and the unwillingness of adults to take evil seriously in America. In America, evil is some nice show on Halloween. That's what it's been reduced to. And so evil comes in the face necessary to confront that delusion. 
but in this case it's scientists or rather people living the scientific life as we learned they're not all that scientific or some of them more so than others they're the ones who face an alien and as you so well put it it's the title that is supposed to start you thinking the thing what is it what thing you don't know it is the fact that we claim to have incredible knowledge through science and we do and incredible power and that is also true we do but there are things we don't know and what if some of the things we don't know are horror we haven't taken control of the universe we haven't taken control of chance and therefore something horrifying could happen and in the story of course you start with what is the human context of evil or horror well there's a couple of people who seem crazy in a chopper shooting at a husky they chase him through the American station. They can't make themselves understood. They're obviously out of their minds. They're shooting and they get killed. And you'd think good guys won, bad guys lost. These crazy people shooting from a chopper at a dog, they're dead. The dog is beautiful. And life goes back to normal. It was a weird thing to happen. It was strange. Never happened before. We don't know why it happened, but it's fine. Because if evil is people who do crazy things, you can kill people. People are mortal. But then it turns out that that dog brings with him a catastrophe. And as you put it, that catastrophe somehow is tied up with life itself being reduced to mere self-reproduction. That is the revelation that is just unbearable. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's a good point about the limits of science. And also, you pointed out the setting. Halloween takes place in suburbia. This movie takes place on uh, the base camp of a scientific expedition in Antarctica where you would think that the men are there despite whatever whatever personal reasons brought them there, we don't know. They're there for a purpose. A purpose is to serve human thought. Sort of the icy heights of reason are invoked here. A combination of courage and technological prowess that got us to that point. This is us at our apex, right? We're able to live here and survive and study the world. And at the same time, there's something very... Um, representative of Earth itself and that, of Earth's place in the cosmos. You, you mentioned uh, cosmic horror, which the word cosmic, we tend to think of sort of this grand outward motion, but really it's quite claustrophobic. It's that we have this one very small place that we know of that we're sure we can live in the vast expanse of an uninhabitable cosmos. And so this is what we have. This is the setting for the thing. This is Earth, writ small. And with the first scene, the opening scene of man hunting a dog, it's strange, it's crazy. There's something quite unsettling about it. it you wouldn't have the same feeling if it were any other animal. Dog is supposed to be man's best friend. Why is man hunting a dog? Why has the natural order sort of been upturned? What, what does that mean? It's quite unsettling. And you realize through the course of the film that man is being reduced to sort of this very elemental minimalist state and you see that especially when fighting the thing guns are ineffective the only thing that can kill the thing is fire that's it very very elemental very primitive. it's the basis of civilization itself the last thing that we have that separates us from other creatures is, is fire and technology itself gets reduced to this one tool that's a very good point the drama even at this mechanical level of how can you kill things well fire will purify it reproduces our situation the cosmos is the antarctica it is the freezing death that is not hospitable to us and fire is how we make some parts of the world better for us 
the light and the heat of the sun protect us and allow us to thrive. And also fire in our own hands is the power from which all other powers are derived. Fire is always Promethean fire. Fire is always the power, the, the core of technology. And of course, always reminds us that to make anything, we have to destroy something else. In this case, fire is a purifier. It's not the fire that protects you from the cold because there are worse things than the cold of the universe in the universe. It is the fire that protects you from the danger that you do not understand. Danger at this basic level, you get heat or you die, is manageable. But there is another kind of danger that comes in the shape of a dog and then in the shape of people. Somehow the enemy could be us or within us. And so at the level of human powers, you see this devolution that also is a concentration of technology into fire. So also at the level of human being rather than powers, you get this sense of what makes us human? What makes our individuality tolerable and workable? The problem of killing a dog, of course, is about loyalty. The dog is a noble animal. We believe our dogs love us and would lay down their lives for us. And in this case, something has gone crazy. People, instead of being helped by their dogs and protecting them in turn, are actually hunting them down. Then we see that the people turn on each other after that. A human being is threatened morally and politically. The small community of Americans on this Antarctic base, they're turning on each other. They don't know if they can trust each other. They don't know who they are. And faced with a horror, they collapse. They do not have whatever it would take, whatever that is, because they're too much like us. As grandiose as their power is, look, they're living in Antarctica and they have massive weaponry, actually, too, and scientific equipment. They're also everyday, mundane, comfortable creatures like you and me. They like to have a Jack and Coke. They like to play computer games, whatever. Well, I guess it's J and B, not Jack. Anyway, <laughs> and that's true about who we are. We are incredibly powerful as civilization, but personally, pretty mundane, pretty everyday, recognizably average, as it were. Yeah, I think that's important for Carpenter setting up the paranoia that comes later. It's in showing that the people in this base camp are fairly comfortable with each other. They may not like each other, there are disagreements, but there's a certain sort of comfort that they have around each other. It reminds me a little bit of um, Moby Dick in the Pequod. It's almost like a microcosm of America, if not the world. You have different types of people all living together. And we really don't know that much about their past. We don't know about their lives outside of Antarctica. We don't know what brought them there. And in a sense, we don't need to know. Right? They're just everyday people who are in a situation, thrust into it, just like us, just like we find ourselves. Yes. And it's that sense of comfort that gives the paranoia its emotional charge, I think. Yeah, it is a microcosm, it is America, and of course, that's why they don't have a past. Right? Where do they come from? Well, you know, where, where do people come from? There's not a lot of past. In America, you always get a new start. There are always new things. But with the new things, for once, this horror comes, which is also a new thing. These people don't have a great past together. They don't know in what way they could trust each other. They got along while it was easy to get along. And it turns out that in our current situation, dealing with terrifying deadly cold is easy. That's something you can get comfortable with. But there's this other problem that comes that apparently they're not ready to face because they don't really know each other. 
they begin to suspect each other and they treat each other worse and worse in insane ways because they're all individuals and they're beginning to sense what a terrifying thing it is to be individual. And this is a specifically human problem in the sense that each one of us thinks I'm human, but I'm also me. Everybody else is human, but they're not me. Now, to some extent, the fact that other people are not me is fine and we get along. But in some moments of crisis, you really start wondering. Everybody goes through some kind of existential crisis of this problem. Am I humanity itself or just one human being? So when somebody breaks your heart, if family doesn't work out, there is partisan crisis that tear a country apart. All of a sudden, all these other people that we got along with, why can't we get along anymore? All of a sudden, being different people is crazy. You don't know who to trust anymore. Everything you took for granted is falling apart. This expertly gets to something a lot of Carpenter's horror is about. How able is America really to deal with the problem of individualism? With the fact that people don't really know each other? With the fact that in troubling times, they might turn on each other or just fall apart? And in this case, you can see from the beginning that there's no chance in hell that this is going to work out. You just know that, yeah, this is not going to be good. They don't have whatever it takes. And this is, you could say, in a broader sense, horror. Horror tends to happen to a bunch of people and they fall apart. And you always think, you know, why can't they think smarter? Why can't they act better? Well, why don't you deal with horror and see how you like it? It affects you at an individual level, existentially. You don't know how to deal with other people anymore. You don't know who to trust. I think that, like you're saying, paranoia is not something that you can think your way out of by the very nature of what it is. And as you said, you start to distrust other people because they're not you. And that itself grows and changes and shifts into you not being able to trust yourself. The question is, well, am I me? What does it mean to be me? And I think this is why the film is so successful is because it works this paranoia on every possible level. There's a sort of a, a paranoia towards the group. There's a paranoia towards ourselves. And us as the viewer, we have this paranoia. We don't really know what's going on either. And to fast forward a bit to the end of the film, just because I think it illustrates this point very well, John Carpenter said in an interview that I read that at the end of the film, when we see Childs and McCready together, and we, we think possibly one of them is the thing, we don't know. And Carpenter said that, indeed, one of them is the thing. And so the question becomes, well, which person it is? Is it McCready, this sort of hero, if you want to call him that, that we've been identifying with or at least cheering for through the whole movie? Or is it Childs, a guy who's had a negative attitude and you know, we're not really sure? And there are a lot of theories. I don't necessarily buy into them, but there are some theories that say McCready is actually the thing. There's some evidence that points to that. He might have faked the blood tests, the famous blood test scene that he... If he were the thing, and if he had been completely assimilated, that he would have done everything he did to win over everyone's trust, to get people separated, to kill people one by one, to become the leader, and that's how he, the thing would have survived. And then if we want to go with the idea that maybe Childs is the thing, there's a lot of evidence for that. I think the most interesting evidence for that is, and if you go back and watch the film, you'll see this, although it's not something that people notice, I think, on the first viewing, but people who are not the thing are lit in such a way that they have a little glow in their eye. Mm-hmm. And the people who are the thing, they do not have that. It's a completely dark pupil. And at the end of the film, McCready has the glint. Childs doesn't. But again, to even for us as viewers to be asking these questions, the paranoia is working on us. Yep. You know, we're trying to solve these problems too, and it's a fruitless effort. 
yeah and you can think about okay we can't quite figure this out and it's probably crazy to turn to this paranoia that's typical of fanboys as it were people who want ownership and a sense of mental control over a story if you look to the story itself you see you know how do people react to this stuff there are a couple who are exemplary one of them's a scientist and one of them's a manly military guy, McCready played by Kurt Russell. And theirs is the final confrontation before this strange, uncertain, ambiguous scene. The scientist is the guy who realizes mankind is over, that this will spread over the whole world and everybody's doomed. It's a matter of necessity. He nevertheless does try to fight it by destroying every vehicle. The monster could still disappear, maybe, or die, or at least be trapped in the ice of Antarctica. And that's what happens when you reason from necessity, as it were. This guy very quickly gets a sense that human beings are actually very, very weak. There's no way humanity can deal with this. Whatever has come to us, we're not ready for it. It's a kind of revelation, but the bad kind of revelation. It's not that there's some god somewhere that likes us and wants to help us. It's that it's over for us and he becomes the last enemy. On the other hand, you have this other guy who's introduced in a surprising way, Kurt Russell, who was a star in the 80s and an action movie guy. Of course, he plays a pilot who is also good with guns, who is also a take charge kind of guy, an all-American manly guy. The way he's introduced, however, he's playing computer chess, drinking JNB and losing. He gets angry at the computer that beat him and he destroys the computer by pouring alcohol on it. That's, of course, very funny, but if you think about it, it's also a way of reacting to necessity. He doesn't accept the results. When the scientist learns from the computer the implications of the powers of the monster, he just concludes we're all dead. There's this other possibility, an all-American manly kind of guy who's not strong intellectually, but he has this moral strength, he doesn't want to accept necessity. So you can see from the beginning why he's the guy who wants to lead everybody to a solution to fight this off, to not give up, not accept what science or the computer tell him is inevitable or necessary. I think Kurt Russell is just stellar in this role. I think this is one of the standout roles in his career. And even the name of his character, McCready, the word ready is in it, right? He has sort of this jaunty stoicism that's just really magnetic. Like you said, when we first see him and he's playing chess against the computer and he pours his drink on it, there's something to that that's Captain Kirk, like the that's game's exactly over. exactly what I was win, thinking. The game's over, and which is interesting. And I think he's not pre-Vietnam all-American hero. He's very much, he has this air of a post-Vietnam cynicism about him. He's a little bit removed. He lives in his own shack above everything. He has his bird's eye view down at base camp. He's always in the back of the scene, unless he's got the flamethrower and he's burning the entity. He's always set back. And he's watching things as they happen, as they unfold. And he's also watching people's reactions. He's looking at people's faces. He's reading them. And there's something cagey about it. But, he, you know, again, he's not amoral, right? He, he definitely wants to survive, but he also would like for other people to survive. And he gives a speech where he says, I know I'm not the thing, and I know at least some of you aren't because I would be dead. He wants to uh, do anything it takes to get home. And I think he's the kind of hero that this kind of story necessitates. His resiliency reminds me a little bit not to overinflate it too much, but it reminds me a little bit of Odysseus. He's not a good guy necessarily. He's fine, but he's very resilient. He doesn't want the worst possible outcome to happen. And that's just sort of a stoic act of will, right? It's not what he wants. He's going to pour the drink in the computer if it means that he's going to lose. The game's going to be over. He's not going to allow this thing to beat him. Yep, that's very good. 
I also thought about this. Oh yeah, the scientist is sort of like Spock and this guy is sort of like Kirk. Americans always come up with these ideas. Is science a kind of tradition you just believe in and live by? Or is it more philosophical, more daring? You have to try the impossible now and then. It's a dichotomy that you keep seeing in American culture and there's a lot to it. I guess it's the same as with Sherlock and Watson. One of them thinks daringly, the other one thinks in a serviceable but limited way because he's too traditional or conventional. So also you get this here, the, the difference between daring on the one hand and on the other hand, the certainty that comes with training, tradition and convention. I think you're right about the cynicism and mental toughness. This guy is not starry-eyed, he is not a nice kid from the Midwest. He's obviously seen quite a lot of stuff and he would have had to, to be able to deal with this at any level. Somebody who'd be shocked by humans descending into chaos would never be able to deal with this. So you need some stuff to toughen you up to be able to deal with it. But before all that, as you said, you have to have this Odyssean quality, endurance. You got to roll with the punches. And, you know, he does fit into a lot of American cinema. He is the Humphrey Bogart guy. Casablanca, or for that matter, the Maltese Falcon. He's the John Wayne guy you'd find in The Searchers, Ethan Edwards. These characters are not so rare because they reveal certain things about why Americans want heroes, why they want somebody who's tough enough to deal with a problem. We're aware at some level our ideas are conventional and they're not good enough in a time of crisis. And what these stories also show us, as you so well pointed out, is that our heroes, for the most part, are not the achievers and the successful people on top of the society. They're loners. They're aloof. They're, you know, cowboys. There's a reason for that. We don't want them in times of peace. If things are okay, we don't want to deal with the drama of people who might take offense at this or that or want to be uh, rulers and boss the rest of us around. And so, yeah, this guy is mostly aloof up until he has to take charge, at which point he does. And you can see he's the kind of guy who would, because he believes at some level he should be in charge. In normal times, he can't. What we see in the first scenes is recognizable as American equality. People are kind of friendly, kind of annoyed at each other, but everybody knows nobody has a right to tell the others what to do. But then this gradually transforms into a situation where somebody has to tell somebody else what to do. There is a man with a gun, an executive authority, but he collapses morally. He doesn't have the confidence to deal with this situation. And that's how our hero, McCready, comes to the fore. And the movies also, as any number of the other things I mentioned, whether it's westerns or old noir detective stories, it's very realistic about the fact that heroes aren't good guys. They're certainly tough guys, and they may work for the greater good, but they're not good guys in the normal sense. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think you see that, I mean, the sort of stereotypical leader is very eager to hand over the reins to McCready, who takes them willingly. And I think you see he's not a good guy, despite the fact that he's a hero, in that he makes the wrong choices and he's fine with it. He does kill people who are still human. I think the way he administers the blood test is very tense in a way that maybe doesn't necessarily have to be. But he's going to be very sure the things he believes need to be destroyed are destroyed, even if that means hurting innocent people. That doesn't really matter much to him. Yep. Um, I think the blood test is maybe one of the strongest scenes in the film. Yes, certainly. And just metaphorically, what it tries to do, how are you going to prove you're human? Well, we'll look at your blood. That's just shocking. 
Yeah, and, and I think you know the parallels with the early AIDS crisis are pretty obvious, and people tend to focus on that. But I think the blood also plays into the Lovecraftian themes also. Um, McCready says at one point that um, the test will work because when you're the thing, every little part is a whole, right? Which is kind of a repugnant notion, right? We Part of what makes us human is that we die and aspects of ourselves die, aspects of our personality, our bodies, they slough off, they die. Hair doesn't have a life of its own. Our limbs, once they're chopped off, they don't have a life of their own. And so the real Lovecraftian horror is sort of sussed out, I think, and really defined in this blood testing theme where we see that the thing is sort of an enemy of what makes us human, which is a lack of unity, and that we do have limits. And you can see the fear and disgust in people's faces when the thing starts to assimilate dogs or humans. People, people freeze. People stare in disgust. They don't necessarily act right away. And I think that's because the non-human aspect of even the blood being alive, it's disgusting because it's so meaningless. It's a meaningless abundance of life beyond being that we find disgusting and that horrifies us. Yep. As you aptly put it, we are made of many different parts that have to work together as a whole, and the parts are of different kinds, and they can't live apart from each other. What keeps us together? What is the wholeness of being human? We used to say, that's my soul. Human beings have souls. That is what is so shocking about this. It's first man's best friend, but then man himself, these people start to think, what if there is no soul? What if there is no me to me? What if there is no you to you? How can you right. trust anybody anymore? I think that's the major question that this film asks is, in a world that is purely natural, completely denuded of the transcendent realm, where it's possible that creatures exist in time beyond time and in a future beyond a future, what is the value of being human at all? You know, is it even worth it? And it seems like the only possible answer and the only answer that the film can come up with is a sort of non-answer. It's a sort of stoic act of will that we see in McCready. Uh, especially at the very end of the film where he suggests that maybe we shouldn't survive, maybe humans don't deserve to, uh, which in fact would be the most human thing of all, right, which is to die, which is something that the thing refuses to do. And we, in fact, don't know if it does. And so this sort of stoicism towards death in the face of disgusting continuity of life is very powerful. So you see with the scientist a reaction of desperation, with the manly military guy you see a reaction of disgust. And the difference between the two is sort of the difference between acquiescing to necessity and on the other hand believing in nobility, the special destiny of man, and therefore the special destiny of the manly man who wants to stand up for it. Self-defense is a defense of being human as such, which is why McCready is so willing to help everybody else, to save everybody else's life, and also to kill whoever tries to get at him. It's uh, self-defense and defense of the group are always together for him and he kills in self-defense, but he never kills unnecessarily. There is a great scene where the community turns as a mob against him and suspects him of being the monster. He doesn't react by killing them because that would be insane. What he stands up for in himself, he stands up for in mankind as well. It's special to be human. It's important. And the story, however, shows you intellectual virtues and moral virtues broken up. When our uh, moral hero tries to figure out who's human, he doesn't have the knowledge to deal with that. A blood test is all he can come up with. Presumably, you could deal with this fear that what science reveals is that we're not special. If you could keep together moral virtues for practice, for life, for action, and intellectual virtues for science, 
whether you can keep them together, which again, what would it mean to put mind and body together? That's your soul. That would seem to be required to deal with this in any other way except succumb to chaos. I think that's exactly right. I really don't know if I have much more to say about it. Scott, thanks for joining me again. I hope we have shown that Carpenter was a very thoughtful guy and this sort of entertainment that was rejected as disgustingly gory at the time shouldn't be rejected, although it is disgusting and gory, because it makes very serious points about our moral plight and our existential crisis faced with science, faced with the cosmos, and faced with our own bodies and our own embodied being. Have we souls or not? And horror gets at this in an urgent, immediate way, you just feel it in your bones, but the fear has a moral and an intellectual character. You're supposed to understand certain things out of this, and I, for one, am grateful to Carpenter for all I've learned about myself and about America from his movies. Well, thank you so much for having me out to talk about it. This is one of my favorite films, the reasons that you just said. I think it's one of the great films of the 80s, if not the latter half of the 20th century, and uh, it was a real joy to, to talk about it. Well, Scott, with this, we can end our series on the horror. Thank you for doing this with me. It was lovely discovering your essay and getting to know you. And now it's all a matter of finding our next subject, and we'll do this again. That sounds great. Thanks so much, and take care. You too.